Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns here, host of the Primal Endurance Online Mastery Course. It's finally launched. We're so excited to share it with you. Let's hear what Lindsay Taylor has to say about it. Be on the lookout for upcoming announcements about the Primal Endurance Mastery Course that we will be releasing very soon. I just had a chance to preview it, and it is going to be so rad, you guys. And I'm not just saying that because I am one of the featured experts. I am really excited about it. Brad did an amazing job with this. It's going to be such a great resource for people who want to dive really deep into the concepts covered in the Primal Endurance book and in the podcast. It's really amazing, you guys. I'm super stoked about it. Primal Endurance Podcast. Back when Gucci was the shit to rock. Back when Slick Rick had the shit to pop. I'd do anything to say I got it. Damn, the new loafers hurt my pocket. Before anybody wanted K-West beats me and my girl split the buffet at KFC. Dog, I was having nervous breakdowns like, man, these, <laughs> that was better than me. Baby, I'm going on an airplane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Sure enough, I sent the plane tickets, but when she came to kick it, things became different. Every girl I cheated on, skeets I cheated on, couldn't keep it at home. Thought I needed a knee along. I'm trying to right my wrongs, but it's funny these same wrongs help me write the song. Alright. This is maybe the final episode or pair of episodes taking you through the entire content of the Primal Endurance book. And now we get to the beautiful final concluding chapter called The Cortisol Showerhead. Oh, this is some of my favorite stuff. I came up with the concept for this chapter when I was laying in a hospital bed, man, having emergency appendectomy where I was in really bad shape and had the appendix burst for many hours, laying at home thinking that I was going to be okay uh, while I was uh, slowly dying. You know, when you get septic, you burst an organ, it's not a good idea. So uh, my first point that I'd like to make in the podcast is if you're in severe pain, don't leave the emergency room to go home and recuperate. No matter what they say, go back in there and insist on more tests and do any tests they say and get surgery to save your life. So thanks to everybody that uh, came through for me there. And it was definitely a time for reflection. Um, I was still under the influence of an assortment of anesthetic drugs when I uh, was making myself an audio recording saying that this would be a cool concept for the final chapter of the book. And when I replayed the recording, um, it was a lot of uh, slurring and nonsensical comments, same with my phone call to Mark that I placed uh, in the hospital, but he humored me and let me talk through it. And then I guess when the drugs wore off, uh, we came up with some great concepts for this final chapter to kind of put the cap on all the practical information that we dispense throughout the book. So the cortisol showerhead, the strange title, conveys the idea that we have this uh, reserve tank of kind of the fight-or-flight stress hormone cocktail that allows us to 
rise to the occasion of high-stress modern life and perform at peak cognitive or physical function. So you kind of get that burst of energy, and they call it the burst of adrenaline when you're in a deadline situation at work and it's so exciting, or you've been called to uh, deliver a public speaking engagement, and you're going up in front of a live audience of people, and you get really buzzed on the energy, and you're able to concentrate and focus. Same with athletics, of course, when you step onto the starting line of an event, you feel an entirely different uh, physiological state than when you're performing a routine workout. So the cortisol, the prominent stress hormone that we talk about so much, especially in the context of abusing the fight or flight response through chronic stressors in modern life, this is best activated when you're doing brief fight or flight uh, peak performance efforts, especially the physical nature, like doing a high stress, uh, high intensity workout or once in a while pushing yourself beyond your normal fitness capabilities to do the longest ride you've ever done or the longest run. Um, unfortunately, we overstimulate this cortisol stress response through the constant pattern of high-stress, hectic daily lifestyle patterns. So when we talk about showerhead in the title, I'm envisioning... Uh, you know, the fancy shower heads where you have uh, several different settings and you can put it on the ultra high pulsating back setting where you get that thumping massage effect, or you can put it on the fine spray mist and enjoy a different kind of shower experience. So I'm making that analogy between um, the shower head and the way that we can dispense our, uh, our tank of stress reserve over the course of our entire lives. And I have a couple wonderful case studies in this chapter. One of them is my father, and one of them is the father of good friends of mine, uh, the Coburn family, and the uh, patriarch, uh, Run Like Ron Coburn. And he's a guy who uh, inspired me to start the sport of long-distance running, uh, along with his son, Stephen, high school teammates. And him and his uh, adult buddies would run at 5.30 a.m. every single morning throughout our youth, and we finally started joining them and seeing what you know, pushing the body to peak performance, endurance efforts was all about. And these guys were focused and they were fast and they had a great time and they laughed and joked and they made running fun. And he went through his running years. He started late in life. This is Ron Cobra the father um, and ran an amazing 30 consecutive Boston Marathon finishes, 30 in a row. Um, so he only started in his 40s or I believe his late 40s and went all the way into uh, his 70s, running Boston every single year. And not just trotting along and finishing, but he was averaging around a three-hour pace. He put down a 2.54, I think was his best time. So he was a very serious and very competitive, very high-performing runner. Um, but the way that he went about it was so beautiful because um, it's a stark contrast between the overly or the misplaced competitive intensity of many runners that are trying to force things to happen that are not naturally meant to happen. And I'm going to put in some quotes uh, after I introduce kind of the big concept, some quotes from Ron pulling out of the book that were really memorable about the best way to kind of, it seemed like he kind of backed into this wonderful streak of consecutive Boston finishes rather than forcing it to happen. And the other subject is my father, Dr. Walter Kearns, who's had an amazingly long career in his favorite sport of golf. Um, we believe it's a all-time record for the longest distance between um, participating at the highest level of amateur competition in the United States. Uh, back when he was a youth, um, now he's 95 years old here in 2017, 
He was the captain of the Princeton golf team, and he qualified for the U.S. Amateur U.S. Amateur Golf Championship at the age of 19 years old, the 1941 U.S. Amateur. Then, at the age of 67, in 1989, he qualified for the U.S. Senior Amateur, which is for players uh, 50 and older. Um, so it's believed to be unmatched in the history of national championship qualification. Um, if you're familiar with golf, this guy goes out there and shoots his age virtually every time he plays. Uh, the first time he did it was at the age of 67. He shot an incredible 66 four under par, and now he's up to over 1,500 times. Um, his best results in relation to his age were shooting an even par 71 at the age of 87, and then shooting a 76 at the age of 92. He also had seven hole-in-ones in a span of five years after turning 80. Um, and I relate his example because he's so good at pacing himself through life and he never gets into the high ups and downs or the hectic mindset that so many of us suffer from when we're trying to simply get through our busy day or especially achieve our athletic goals. Um, and golf's a great sport for him because it demands that even keel, that level emotional approach where you can't get too upset at yourself for having a bad shot or a bad round. And you also can't get too high on yourself uh, when you put in a good score. The golf course will always win the battle. And you have to respect that and be in that proper mindset rather than trying to beat it to submission with your force of will because you're such a motivated, disciplined athlete. And so when we get over into the endurance sports, we oftentimes see this uh, application of this overly competitive, misplaced competitive intensity mentality where we feel like uh, if we just put in enough miles or if we just speed up a little bit, and I'm referencing back to all the Q&A shows where people are writing in wondering if they can throw in more speed work to get ready for the race or they can raise up their aerobic heart rate to go a little bit faster because it's so frustrating to slow down and be patient with the process of fitness. And I kind of uh, create this contrast between this kind of hurry, hurry, go, go, go mindset and these two great role models that have achieved magnificent athletic feats from having a more casual, more methodical, more paced approach. Um, let's do some excerpting from the commentary in the book. If you care about your longevity in endurance sports and also your longevity on the planet, you'll want to do the best possible job managing your spray nozzle. This will enable both the actualization of your potential and also preservation of your health and longevity through the judicious balancing of stress and rest as you pursue these challenging, appealing, and appropriate uh, life goals and uh, especially endurance competitive goals. Along those lines, it's important to recognize that there are significant differences among individuals in work capacity, stress tolerance, athletic potential, and preferences for just how much stimulus and excitement one wants to take on over the course of your life. You see what I mean here? This is especially relevant to me because when I was competing on the professional circuit and trying to measure up to my fellow competitors and my rivals and compare my work output and training to them, I always fell short. And this dates back all the way to my high school running team where I was commonly the guy in the middle or the back of the pack or the guy cutting short workouts while the rest of them carried on because I would get tired, I would come up with injury risk or injury issues, and it seemed like that my volume, my capability to handle workload was lower than competitors that 
uh, despite them uh, going slower than me on the race course, just things worked out for me better when I watched my own energy output rather than trying to compete and compare with others. And it took a long time to learn this lesson the hard way, that is trying to adhere to the training patterns of my rivals or people that I wanted to beat or people that I was surrounded by because of my uh, team situation like college running team or my training partners. And I continually uh, got that recalibrating message of getting my ass kicked and getting tired and overtrained and burnt out and injured because I was trying to do something that worked well for other people, but not necessarily for me. Okay. So same with the general uh, approach to life and all your competitive goals in life. And I remember, you know, competing on the pro circuit. And sometimes we'd get these guys that were so highly accomplished at the amateur level that they would step into the pro environment and actually compete really well, even though they had, for example, uh, you know, high level careers that they were balancing or they had families. And I was just this kid who was sleeping half my life and didn't have a lot of worries or other responsibilities. And I was trying to apply all my uh, my energy in my life to performing as an athlete and getting beat by a guy in medical school. Let me tell you, man, <laughs> it's already a bit of a, uh, there, was a, there was a bit of an issue there where I was taking my peak uh, earning and career year, years and dedicating them to training while my peers, let's say my high school and college buddies were indeed going to medical school, law school, MBA school, rising up the corporate ladder, um, getting immersed into Hollywood and, and building these wonderful careers while I was just racing and didn't have a whole ton to show for it in terms of letters past my name and things like that. So these multitaskers that are accomplished in so many different ways and seem to have endless amounts of energy, that's great for them, but it doesn't guarantee happiness. And I know a lot of highly, highly accomplished people that struggle with just being able to have a baseline level of happiness in day-to-day life. So there's no magic formula here that the more you accomplish, the more fulfilled and happy you will be. And in fact, there's probably an inverse relationship to where the more you feel like you need to accomplish something to be happy, um, the more you're going to have trouble and struggle. So I think I'm going to make a assumption that we probably have a sufficient number of CEOs and CEO candidates in the world. We probably have a sufficient number of high-performing lawyers, actors, doctors, accountants, whatever you want to put in there, um, whereby there's going to be a lot of people constantly pursuing these high-level positions. And there's no obligation that you need to live your life in a certain way in order to be considered a worthwhile human being. I think the people that you encounter in real life that are nice and kind and friendly and like to reach out and give and connect with other people, those are the most esteemed qualities, even if they happen to be a surf guide in rural Mexico making $62 a day to take uh, white people on surf trips and getting them sunburn on their neck and other areas like their lower back. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, let me tell you, man, um, it's, you know, it's not as straightforward as you might think. I just had to throw some fun stuff in there to make sure that you're listening and that your eyebrows raise once in a while. Um, so the main point I was trying to make when I departed from the quote is that take it easy on yourself, do what makes you happy. If you're compelled to pursue high-level challenges and you can't sleep at night because your mind is so busy racing with uh, a new idea, like creating the idea for Uber Darn, I wish I'd thought of that. I mean, isn't that beautiful to think about 
setting up a driver who wants to drive and a person who wants a ride with the touch of a button on your iPhone. I think that's amazing technology, and I'm really, really frustrated that I didn't think of it myself. But if that's the kind of thing that's compelling you to get up every morning, that's fantastic. But if you're feeling the pressure from the outside world because uh, you're not going to get accepted into the highest ranking college and nonsense like that, because I'm around a lot of youth, especially my own kids, and I'm trying to impart this message over and over to relax and not face that pressure, not accept that pressure from the measuring and judging modern world to be something other than who you really are and stay true to your own values and and interests and talents. So if you want to take uh, a semester off and go travel around the world and bum around Europe and um, do something that not is not labeled as productive by many people, uh, be okay with it and then come back to challenges and peak performance focus goals when it's natural and proper and feels uh, congruent with uh, what, what's interesting you, okay? So here we go back to the text. It's critical to spend a little time figuring out where you stand on this spectrum, this spectrum of work capacity, stress tolerance, things like that, and honor your particulars with your lifestyle decisions. What athletic challenges are most appealing to you? and fit conveniently with your other lifestyle circumstances. Again, I'm going to pause and emphasize this as a big one, man. For some reason, I think it's marketing forces, uh, corporate marketing forces, have created this buzz in the endurance world that the marathon is the ultimate running distance for people running on the roads, and that the Ironman is the ultimate distance for a triathlete to excel at. And I'm going to challenge that for a moment because the Ironman is an extraordinarily long event that's too long to be able to actually race by 99% of the participants. Even half of the pro field is not really capable. They don't have the fitness level to actually race the race. So they're basically doing a survival event rather than a competitive event, which is fine once in a while. And if it really turns you on to see if you can endure for 14 hours or 16 hours, and that's your compelling goal, I'm not going to discount that. But what about uh, elevating the importance of, let's say, uh, becoming more and more competent and more and more competitive at the Olympic distance? The Olympic distance is kind of important too, because that's the distance that's in the Olympic Games, and the Olympic Games is a pretty big deal. But the Olympic distance for triathlon I'm speaking about is a mile swim, a 25-mile bike, and a six-mile run, give or take, in kilometers. And right there, that is a doable effort for many, many more people that have life responsibilities and can't train all day. It's far more doable and far more reasonable of an athletic goal than is the Ironman. And everyone seems like as they get more experience in the sport and more accomplished, they keep upping the distance of their ultimate competitive event as if the progression is representing more and more accomplishment. So I think that's absolute nonsense. And I feel like um, if there were more people shooting to improve their time in the five-kilometer run where we could see actual people moving quickly through space at the age of 40 or 50 or 60, rather than just a whole butt-ton of joggers jogging very slowly doing 26 miles, it might make the entire uh, sport of endurance uh, more respectable and more acceptable. Same with the triathlon population. Um, How about becoming more and more competent at swimming so you actually have an efficient stroke and you're moving through the water instead of just kind of plodding along with your wetsuit, hoping to wash up on the beach in time for the swim cutoff. I feel like it's misplaced efforts where you can really uh, gain more... um, Uh, self-satisfaction from becoming a a truly competent athlete rather than just a survivor. 
whew, hey, if you disagree with me, that's fine too. And going longer is better. All right, go for it. But set yourself up with the proper mindset and know that you're the one in control of your lifestyle decisions and what means the most to you. Honor the particulars with your lifestyle decisions instead of just falling in line with the prevailing marketing hype that says this is what you should do to consider yourself an accomplished athlete. You get where I'm coming from here? I hope so. All right. Set yourself up for success before you even think about workout particulars or race strategy. Get your attitude straight so you don't get unnecessarily stressed about your results, peer pressure, or adhering to a consistent regimented workload. Um, so in talking about my father, Walter Kearns, and Ron Cobrin, um, Ron has a nice quote when I asked him, you know, what was the secret to being able to get fit and ready 30 years in a row to complete Boston in a very, very impressive time? Again, this guy banged a 254. I believe that was in his, after his 50th year of life. So he's running uh, in, in award-winning times, but also putting the streak together. And Ron says, quote, the Boston streak was something that just happened. I didn't plan it. I enjoy running and the social connections of running, and things just became habit after a while. The Boston Marathon is a beautiful race in a beautiful city, so of course I signed up every year, and so did all his buddies. And when he talks about things just happening, let me tell you also, the pace that these guys trained at, it just happened that these guys ran fast. They were real runners, even at 5.30 in the morning. We would go hit these hills hard and be back in an hour, and we'd have covered eight or nine miles, and it was a beautiful flowing thing where um, it was, you know, not like people are straining and suffering, but they just got fit over time by allowing the natural process of fitness to just happen. So back to further quote from Ron. Um, This is upon reflection after doing 30 years, and then he ended his streak, interestingly, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, Oh, no, this is in his quote. So he says, upon reflection, I realize that my life in retirement is much simpler and calmer. He's talking about retiring from his career as an actuary, but also retiring from the Boston streak. So he hung up his Boston shoes after that 30th one. He's got the frame on the wall. He goes back and supports his, uh, his children running Boston, but he doesn't feel that compulsion to keep going indefinitely. I think you're allowed to hang it up after 30 Bostons, don't you? Okay. So he says, my life in retirement from work is much simpler and calmer. So I don't need the running the same way I did when life was busier. Running was a form of meditation for me. It helped me clear my head and balance the assorted stresses of building a business, raising a family, and managing the faster-paced life in my younger years. So he has found a place for running all through his life. And now, as he relates in the book, uh, he had some uh, some health conditions, surgeries, and uh, recovering from the surgery, he started to get into a walking regimen, and he found that he enjoyed the walking so much in the natural settings like the state park that he didn't feel the compulsion to break into a run at all. And so now he's just a walker. And to hear him talk about his transition is so cool because there's no unfinished business. He doesn't have that frustration that you hear in the fr- in, in the voice of so many athletes where they 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 did their uh, competitive endeavors. They felt like they didn't quite do as much as they could. Uh, they feel unfulfilled. And then um, maybe they're on the other side of their peak performance years. And all you hear is the frustration uh, coming out at the forefront rather than saying, hey, I did the best I could. I enjoyed the ride. And now I enjoy walking. So, you know, what a great transition, healthy transition. Um, 
I, I talked about my dad and his mindset. Um, this is a little bit of um, a quoting back from the book. Uh, he does not get emotional, harried, overstressed, negative, angry, or overexcited. He's level and calm in the face of everything that's come down his path in 95 years. Pacing and moderation. Now, um, that's different than someone who's going through life in a mediocre manner who also paces themselves and stays level. Because when you shoot a 71 even par at the age of 87, this is not a moderate athletic performance. Ron Cobrin's casual approach to marathon training um, is, is great, but it's not a moderate athletic performance to run 30 Bostons in a row and run 254 when you're an old guy. So at the same time that they had this level-headed approach, they were also able to free themselves to pursue incredible athletic goals and perform at an incredibly high athletic level, uh, buoyed by the pure love of the activity instead of that angst and that anxiety and that high-stress, misplaced competitive intensity that you see from so many other peak performers that have a perhaps flawed mindset. So back to the text. Again, there is no right or wrong way to use your shower head. What we're talking about here is the trade-off between peak performance and seizing the day, that turbo-pulsating massage setting and on the one side, and longevity, that's called the fine mist setting, on the other side. If you do things the right way, pursue your endurance goals with a primal-aligned, stressed-balanced approach, these two goals don't have to be diametrically opposed. Energy is a renewable resource in the body, so an active, exciting, adventurous lifestyle can beget more energy and vibrant health. However, when your approach is flawed, either logistically from overtraining chronic patterns, right, or psychologically from that misplaced competitive intensity, peak performance and longevity can indeed be diametrically opposed. In this case, you are indiscriminately blasting the shower head, enjoying, perhaps enjoying, the short-term peak performance response at the boost from the uh, powerful uh, fight-or-flight hormones, but you are draining the tank, and it's a tank that you'll be needing for a lifetime because of your irresponsible approach, right? So when we can do these crazy things, if you're a rock star going on tour for 10 years and living the fast life and not paying attention to your health, guess what? You're going to pay for that rock and roll decade for the rest of your life. And if you think I'm being funny and you're not relating to your time on tour with Pearl Jam or The Stones, that rock and roll lifestyle is the exact same thing that the prim and proper endurance athlete on the fancy bike with their elbows in the drops is doing to their bodies. It's an overstimulation, a chronic overstimulation of the stress response. You can get to burnout in many, many different ways. You can do it partying all night in the Caribbean with Mick Jagger and The Stones, or you can do it on the roads of America uh, training for these exciting, overly lengthened triathlon or ultra-distance running events. So energy is a renewable resource in the body. An active, exciting, adventurous lifestyle can beget more energy and vibrant health. Uh, when your approach is flawed, you're indiscriminately blasting the shower head. That's just a review. And here we go back. Sometimes severely abusing the spray nozzle causes it to jam up and shut off without warning. As discussed with the running on empty, that's a quote, and there's an article titled by that name, which you might want to Google, running on empty, discussed with these ultra runners in chapter nine. The author of the article, Megan Brown, reports that a pattern appears among the athletes studied. This is the ultra runners that rise up to the highest level of ultra running performance. They're winning 100 mile races, 
incredible athletes coming out from the woodwork, coming down from the mountain, performing at a high level, making a steady progression to the top, the top of their sport, and the progression lasts around two years. So they go, 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 and they just rise up the rankings for two years, followed by a sudden crash with an assortment of disturbing symptoms that thoroughly confuse even the most informed physicians. Such a common theme these days, but you have to be mindful that you're under the influence of this magic spray, and it has the capability to mask fatigue and distort your decision-making capabilities in the process. Can anyone relate to this, please? Uh, how about that time when you're trying to take your company uh, to uh, from startup to public offering, and you're working 60, 70 hours a week, going crazy, and so excited and energized and inspired that you felt fine and you discounted all the other areas of your life. So you were just a working machine fueled by vending machine fare or Chinese delivery to the late nights at the office, and it's go, go, go. Um, your body can do it. When you, when you ask your body to perform, same with the hard training. When you get into that high-level endurance training, even while your kids are young and you're coaching soccer and you're attending work meetings and traveling around on business and trying to make it work on all these different spinning plates in your life, you can handle it for a while, but oftentimes you're heading for this familiar uh, destination called burnout because the fatigue is masked while you're in these prolonged high-stress periods. Uh, When I was an athlete, obviously I had all the other stress factors in my life moderated, and I have some strange things to report if you look through my training logs over the years. Uh, I particularly remember in the early uh, months of 1988, they had announced these uh, amazingly huge uh, prize money races to start the season out in April and May. So we had the two richest races in the history of the sport of triathlon uh, one in St. Croix, Virgin Islands, one in Australia, and the prize purse was dwarfing even the most prestigious races on the calendar to date, like the Hawaii Ironman uh, and the World Championships. So there was huge money for the taking for the first time ever in the sport of triathlon, where you could actually put in a day's work, place highly in the in the event, and take home, you know, 10 grand, 15 grand, 20 grand, 25 grand, something that was really significant rather than the piecemeal purses that we were competing for prior to that. So I got so excited that I turned up the the nozzle, <laughs> the spray nozzle, I turned up the volume on my training tremendously, and I was putting in um, the best workouts I'd ever done. I was feeling superhuman. I was climbing in the mountains all day, and then coming out to the running track and putting down some intervals, and then heading over to the pool and waking up the next day and feeling fine and not sore and energetic and doing it again and pushing out my long ride from 100 miles to 140 miles and pumping up the pace on those long rides, and everything was going just wonderfully, and I was really dreaming of myself placing right up there on the podium against the best guys in the world because my workout performances were suggesting that I was capable of doing just that. And then what happened as the race dates approached is I started to fall apart, not from getting a distinct illness or an injury, but just having a little bit less battery power with each passing day and passing week because I had vastly overexceeded my level of capability, my ability to absorb the training, and I'd put in all these workouts. I'd felt fine at the time. I felt fine from hour six to hour seven climbing the mountains and finishing my long bike ride because I was under the influence of this powerful cocktail of stress hormones. So I wasn't a stupid guy, uh, you know, forcing myself to go ride the bike when I felt exhausted and I'd rather sleep. 
Rather, I felt fine and was making sensible decisions every single day thinking, okay, well, I'm not sore. I feel good. I'm going to go out there and do it again. But I had forgotten to kind of step back and look at this big picture perspective. That's why I'm emphatically saying uh, in this show especially, do as I say, not as I did, and, and understand and reason with your level of stress, whether it's uh, doable and sensible or whether you're burning the candle at both ends, even to no ill effects right now, but someday you are destined to fall apart. So uh, summarizing, when you're under the influence of this magic spray, it has the capability to mask fatigue and distort your decision-making abilities in the process. <laughs> and that is, that's the real deal, man. Okay, let's get back to the text. Departing from one's training routine, even briefly, is a novel concept for many endurance athletes with the ever-present fears of getting out of shape or losing the feel for the water if you skip one day of swimming. Um, this is something that we need to reframe and shatter as a, a, a notion that's connected to reality because the body loves to rest. Oh my gosh. And what a great uh, soundbite from Andrew McNaughton on the Primal Endurance Mastery Course trailer video. Uh, I know I've talked about the mastery course on the recent shows because we're so excited to launch it and finally have this comprehensive educational experience for you to get in deep on all these topics, um, but especially uh, on the most important ones is cultivating that ideal mindset for peak performance. And during the video, Andrew says, um, you know, when you're training, the funnest thing is to go fast and compete and go fast. And how do you go faster? You rest more. <laughs> so departing from your training routine, departing from your high-stress routine, or packaging your high-stress daily routine with downtime, downtime from everything. I mean, endurance athletes are using the weekends for their high-volume training days because they have more free time than the work week. But it's very, very possible, very likely, that you will benefit further from taking, let's say, your Sunday on your weekend and making it downtime from not only your busy, hectic work week, but also from training. So you sleep in, read the newspaper, have breakfast in bed, instead of throwing down yet another workout and then packing everything up and heading back into the office on Monday. I know it's a novel concept, but if you give it a shot, you might really uh, see some good results over time from having those nice, uh, distinct fluctuations between stress and rest, not only in your training days, but also in your life. Uh, finally, one more paragraph to conclude uh, the content in the book as well as the show. Primal Endurance gives you the go-ahead to sign up for those ambitious goals of yours, whether it's a 70.3 or a full Ironman or a 50-kilometer trail run or a bike tour down the west coast of the United States, but try to adopt a chill approach like Ron Coburn or Walter Kearns and don't get too worked up when things go wrong nor when things go well. When you ask the maximum from your mind and body for athletic excellence, understand the consequences of your performance demands. Notice the times when you are cranking up the spray nozzle to the turbo setting and resolve to include the necessary downtime to balance extreme peak performance demands. It might mean implementing a pattern of skipping a year of competition or two after several consecutive years. Um, and back to the start of the show, when I talked about my inspiration for writing uh, this chapter and talking about the cortisol shower head and laying in the hospital bed. This is middle of the year. It's a June time frame. And I realized that the preceding months, uh, this was the year 2015, 
I had really tried to step up my endurance training for the first time in many, many years and really become a real runner again rather than just a casual jogger and a primal fitness guy who was doing my strength training, my sprints, and a decent amount of endurance training. I was all psyched up to get competitive in the sport of speed golf where you run as fast as you can around a golf course. It's about a five-mile endurance event where you're playing golf and timing yourself over a a standard round of golf. And so I was putting in vastly more training hours, running hours than I had in many previous years. Again, I'm many, many years retired from professional triathlon circuit and high-level training. So I'm just an ordinary 50-year-old guy like everybody else. Uh, But I didn't really realize, having taken off from extreme training from age 30 to age 50, that there was a little bit of aging factor involved here in my ability to absorb and withstand um, a significant amount of aerobic training. Furthermore, I made an error in calculation on my maximum aerobic heart rate. So I was calculating my aerobic maximum heart rate, that all-important number, they call it the MAF heart rate, um, for Phil Maffetone formula that we're touting so aggressively these days. But prior to that, I had calculated that off a percentage of my maximum heart rate um, using the uh, ventilatory threshold science that's so often recommended and putting this number in of 77% of maximum heart rate, which is believed to correlate with your ventilatory threshold, which if you're in a laboratory with a mask on, you're seeing a recruitment of the oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers and a change in your uh, your oxygen exchange ratio where they can pinpoint on a graph and say, there you are, that's your maximum aerobic heart rate. Well, guess what? Um, when I did that calculation off of my max heart rate, which is much higher than my uh, predicted max due to my age, uh, because I've seen a 190 on the on the watch when I'm doing sprints, and my max heart rate at the age of uh, 50 is only supposed to be uh, much lower than that. If you do 220 minus age, that's what, 170. So there was a gap there, and my calculation came out to 142 beats per minute. And so I would train aerobically, minding my business and trying to um, you know, be a, uh, a, a beacon for sensible endurance training and spread the word. So I was making sure I was staying under 142. But day after day, extending up to 142 was putting me into this black hole that we talk about in such length uh, with such warning in the book. So I was slightly exceeding my aerobic maximum heart rate every single day, every single run for months and months on end. Um, This is why we became so emphatic at respecting the Maffetone formula of 180 minus age, which in my case comes out to Um, 130 in the example, 50 years old, 180 minus 50 equals 130. So the difference between 130 and 142 is pretty uh, significant when you add it up every single day for months and months and months. So what I believe happened to me at training at this 142, this ill-advised ventilatory threshold calculation off my max heart rate, was I dug myself into an overtraining spiral pattern that compromised my health and in this case, my organ function. Um, So I don't think it was a coincidence that I burned up an organ coming on the heels of getting myself slightly run down and uh, unhealthy due to uh, black hole training. And it happened, in fact, uh, that my appendix problem came about at the end of a week where we had 100-degree temperatures in Sacramento, and I'd done two impressive workouts back-to-back. One, a sprint workout where it was over 100 degrees. It was in the afternoon 
and I put down my usual sprint workout. And then two days later, I was in a really hot basketball gym and I was jumping up, touching the rim and experienced some peak performance breakthroughs, uh, doing my dribbling drills and having all kinds of fun. And then after that workout, I didn't feel so hot. So I believe what I did was get into a state of significant dehydration And that set the stage along with being run down in general from five or six months of ill-advised black hole training to the extent that uh, one of my organs gave out. And then I was in a world of hurt in the hospital and actually endured complications for several months after and three follow-up kidney surgeries. And it was all no fun and no good. And of course, if you talk to a physician, they will say that appendix things are random They're not attributed to anything. Same with the complications I had with um, bleeding from my kidney. But guess what? I was a pretty healthy guy before I dug myself into this overtraining spiral pattern. So coming out of that, yes, the maximum aerobic heart rate is critically important. The 180 minus age calculation is the most sensible, especially if you're one of these random people like myself that has a much higher maximum heart rate than my age-predicted maximum heart rate. So err on the side of caution, slow things down, make sure that you dispense your cortisol showerhead carefully, and what you want to experience is feeling refreshed and energized after most of your workouts and feeling like a healthy, energetic person with a spring in your step rather than a person who's crashed out on the couch in between workouts and uh, can barely function through daily life due to this extreme and ill-advised commitment to endurance goals. Um, So the fun uh, follow-up to the story is when I uh, got healthy and righted my training and slowed down and adhered to 130 heartbeat per minute for the ensuing years, and now we're talking about two years ago, so I have a good two years of aerobic exercise under my belt at the proper heart rate. Um, My maximum aerobic function test is just as good, actually slightly better than it was when I performed a maximum aerobic function test at 142 heartbeats per minute. This story is also confirmed or validated by the Mike Pig sidebar in the book, where he beat his time, his all-out racing time, from his home in Arcata to the family cabin in the mountains, a three-hour bike ride, and he beat his time at aerobic heart rate, his previous time when he was racing all-out and well above his aerobic heart rate, basically doing anaerobic threshold time trial effort for three hours. He improved his aerobic function so much that he, w- he could perform as good or better than when he was racing all out. In my case, I could run the same pace per mile at 130 heart rate as I could at 142 heart rate two years prior. What does that mean when it comes to a competitive setting? It means that I have 12 beats in my back pocket where as I extend my pace and go faster and faster, I have a much higher performance potential at the end because I've built a better aerobic pace and furthermore, am a healthy person who's able to recover from workouts rather than constantly be balancing on the edge of burnout, overtraining, and in my case, a severe health disturbance. Okay, if that's not emphatic enough to like kind of control that shower head, keep your hand on the shower head keep that vision in your head that of course we can perform and rise to the occasion and work long hours and uh, train long hours, but we also want to keep things sensible, pace ourselves, and enjoy a long, happy, healthy, balanced life with a constant pursuit of peak performance goals and improvement, but always under the foundation of balancing stress and rest. Thank you so much for listening to the show that will title The Cortisol Shower Head. 
This is your host, Brad Kearns, for the Primal Endurance Podcast. Have a great day. For the day you die, you're going to touch the sky. You're going to touch the sky, baby girl. Testify. Come up in the spot, look at extra fly. For the day you die, you're going to touch the sky. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.